This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. So if you're a beginner or an expert or anyone in between, you've found your new home. Welcome to Identity at the Center. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I don't know what it is. I, I'm good. Well, I'm okay. I have allergies. I'm traveling. So it's good times. I don't know what it is. Whenever I kind of kick off the show, you look at me like with this smile and this is an audio podcast, but you give me this, you know what, eating grin <laughs> and I have no idea what you're about to say next. So this is sort yeah, of like the way that I works. always prepare something fun to talk about. And today it's, I was thinking about a video call that I was on yesterday. And I mean, that's pretty much our lives, right? We just sit on video calls all the time. And two people had the same virtual background. They were in like the same office space. You've, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has seen this virtual background. It looks like the person has like a corner desk and there's glass windows all around them. And it, it's not the biggest city in the world, but they're in some kind of urban area. Well, two people were sitting in the same chair in the same virtual background. And I thought to myself, Okay, for me, I've been working from home now for, I think it's 11, 12 years. I, actually, it might even be longer than that. And, you know, I think with the pandemic, it's kind of taken off. And I kind of get to the question of like, one, when is software going to improve the virtual backgrounds, give you more choices and not have that like awful blur around your hair and like cut people's ears off and stuff like that. And then number two, when are people going to ditch the virtual backgrounds and kind of just like invest in having a, a nicer background? And then that got me thinking like, so I'm going to put that question out to you, but then it got me thinking about, you know, remote work and, you know, it, it seems like it's here to stay as far as I'm concerned, especially in our industry. I think the pandemic brought it to a new level. I think the great resignation got organizations hiring IT and InfoSec people, especially from, hey, wherever you live, if you're good at what you do, you can work here. So I think it's here to stay. And, you know, it, but it's interesting, I, you know, you traffic is back too. <laughs> That's a very yeah. real thing. So what are your thoughts? Well, you have a few things there. Let's start with the virtual backgrounds. Um, I mean, I think Everyone remembers a couple years ago, right? Virtual backgrounds were like the rage, or the rage. Zoom, uh, WebEx, GoTo, like everybody was adding in features into their video conferencing software to be able to do that. Um, you know, there was fun ones at first, and then you know people I think got bored of it, and then they didn't care, and then they just went with like a static, you know, company logo or just one of the built-in ones that came with it. I think I know the one you're talking about. I don't know if that was teams or i think it was probably teams or webex that we were on yesterday pretty much all day and i know i think i know what you're talking about it's like the white one with like the glass kind of windows and yeah you get the weird like fuzz around people's head with the uh you know the blur i don't so, so the blur one's interesting because that is extremely software dependent but if you have the appropriate hardware you can actually make it look better and if you have the appropriate lighting it works even better that is what I see as like the biggest downfall of most people is their lighting is just crap when it comes to web cameras and kind of setting out and positioning. My favorite thing is um, people, 
so at home when I'm actually in my like normal setup and not traveling, I have a, a pretty, I've invested, my background looks good. I have a nice Sony mirrorless camera. I have lighting, stuff like that, that, it, you know, kind of comes off well. And people always think that I'm standing in front of a virtual background and I back up into my virtual background. <laughs> it looks like, you know, it's like, oh no, this is like, this is real. Like I actually like took the time to set it up. I figured he was like, Hey, you know what? I'm always on camera about for something. Might as well invest the time and, you know, get it set up the way that I'd like to kind of present myself rather than having that awkward, you know, up the nose angle, <laughs> double chin, uh, turtleneck, <laughs> whatever it might be uh, for people looking at. So I think that's one. Um, if you have a, I will throw a pro tip out there. If you have a computer that has um, an NVIDIA, a relatively recent NVIDIA video card into it, uh, NVIDIA has a software called Broadcast that is free. It works off of your video card and basically does a much better job of doing like virtual camera, um, you know, depth of background, um, you know, those sorts of things, but it does require a pretty decent video card for it to, to work well. So that's my pro tip for that. Now you mentioned, I think the other thing was what working at home and if work that's from home, stay, whether it's I here think, to stay, yeah, it has to be, I mean, come on. I mean, everyone found out in the last like what, two, three years, the jobs that their managers and directors and CEOs were saying, no, we need you in the office. We can't work without that. Guess what? They figured it out over the last two years. Like very few companies failed because people were working from home. Like that just wasn't a thing. And now the technology is here. The bandwidth is here. We have all the tools to make it effective. Um, I think actually the work-life balance has gotten worse because of it. I know that I spend a lot more time working than I do than I would. The commute is gone, which is really nice, but I think people have filled that time up to some degree with just even, you know, getting more work done or whatever it may be. So I think that's my opinion on it. I think every job is a little bit different. Some there is probably a better idea to be in. Maybe there's some kind of hybrid. You know, I think we miss sort of like the human interaction, some things, um, but I don't see hybrid work at least going away. I think remote will, will have to be a component of it just for people to stay competitive because there's really smart people all over the world and you're telling me you wouldn't hire like this rock star, you know, identity person just because, you know, they live in, you know, let's say North Carolina and the rest of the company is in, I don't know, San Francisco. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like that's just, that's, that's not a good reason. Well, that comment you just made there brought me to the other, the, the plan B topic, which was the Super Bowl ad from uh, Workday, which was, you know, going around and calling everybody rock stars and like Ozzy Osbourne's in it. And mm -hmm. he's like, hi, I'm Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good commercial. I enjoyed it. I think it's, you know, uh, I don't know if it's overused term rock star, whatever me, but I think, you know, one thing that I always like to say is there's probably a bunch of, uh, you know, identity heroes running around within an organization actually making it work. Uh, you know, I think a lot of organizations wish they were like completely automated and had all the bells, whistles, technologies, and, you know, it just happens. It's magic, right? Stuff like that. But the real, the real story behind it is there's probably, you know, somewhere between like, four and maybe 20 people who are really behind the scenes actually making this stuff work and they're going above and beyond on a daily basis people so. who really care that's right and i think yeah. for from a management perspective if you're in management make sure that you pat those people on the back and let them know that they're valued and etc and they are valued people will <laughs> if they're not if they don't feel like they're being taken care of they will absolutely go look for something else so take care of the people that are strategic to your organization so as much as I love work from home, I've always felt like it should be done more. And now I'm glad to see it is where it is. I still like getting together with people. We've got a few conferences lined up coming up. And in particular, 
I, I know I keep emphasizing this, but the Gardner IM Summit, you and I are doing a session. We're going to be facilitating one called, what is it like, Inside the Belly of the Gardner Beast. Where we're Something going like that, to yeah. have, um, yeah, Henrique and Becky, two of the IM analysts over at Gardner, on stage with us. And we're going to ask them some tough questions. Yeah, they've been pretty um, graceful with us and letting us really touch on a lot of topics. We had sort of our first planning session last week to kind of run through. Here's here's the idea. Here's the sort of questions that we're thinking about asking. Are these okay? And we didn't hit anything that was a no yet. And some of them I think will be, you know, polarizing, shocking, put them on the hot seat a little bit, maybe make them play defense for a little bit, which I always find, you know, interesting. But we'd love to have as many, you know, questions as we can from our listening audience so feel free to hit us up on LinkedIn, Twitter, Mastodon, all the places that we're at. Um, send those in. If you, We have people who have sent them in anonymously. Some people are fine with having their name attached to it. Um, you know, I will put my journalist hat on, which doesn't exist, and say I will protect sources and not tell you know, where things came from and, and things like that if, if, it's an, if it's an especially challenging question, right? I think we want challenging questions, not mean questions like, you know, hey, Jeff, why are you so short? I don't know. I just am. <laughs> Next question, you know, whatever it may be, right? But, you know, those types of questions like, is Gartner pay for play? You know, before you tell me that it's not pay for play, because of course you're going to say it's not. Why isn't it? Right. Explain that sort of decision. So those types of questions, I think will be interesting to kind of put them on. Um, we have 30 minutes and we have a lot of content already. So we're looking for like the best of the best. I've seen a few themes come through, some sort of like combining similar questions into maybe, you know, one or two is kind of go things, go things on. But it's, it's going to be fast. I mean, that 30 minutes is going to be over before we even know it. And I will be surprised if we get through half of what we like have scheduled as we go through it. Yeah. And so the other thing that I wanted to mention, not sure when this episode is going live, but we are doing a IDAC podcast community meetup. Um, we're looking at it being Monday night. Uh, I'm sorry, this Tuesday at night at Gartner. So if depending on when this episode goes out, if there's still open spots, we'll have the link to the registration in the show notes. If it's not there, it's because, you know, the episode went out late and maybe it's all filled up already because we will have a limited number of spots. So I encourage you to get out there and register if you can make it. And uh, we'd love to have you. Yeah. What do you have planned? You've been working on this for a little bit with, um, different yeah. counterparts. Can, can you share yet what that is or do you want to wait? Um, I, I'm going to share it. So um, the idea is that we're going to go to an axe throwing event. So this place that we found has axe throwing and like retro video games like Donkey Kong and Miss Pac-Man and stuff like that. So everybody will get to be there, have things to do, socialize, there'll be food. Etc. And so I was able to line up a few organizations, including the one that you and I work for, RSM, to sponsor the event. Uh, the the other sponsors are going to be Okta and One Cosmos. Uh, but it's an event for the listeners of this podcast. So you feel like, oh, I work for a competitor of one of those three sponsors. I don't want to go there. That's not the idea. The idea is this is really about the identity at the center podcast and the people who listen to it. So. Um, you know, consider yourself welcome. Yeah. 
definitely. And, you know, come on, man, throw axes. That's I've never done that. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we let's see what else do we got? We got Identiverse coming up in May. I think you and I are working on getting out there for that. We got European Identity and Cloud Conference uh, from Cooper and Cole is out in Europe, uh, obviously. <laughs> uh, coming as well. I don't think we'll be at that one, but um, that's always a great conference. I think a, a lot of people get a lot of value out of that one, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, RSA is attended by a lot of identity people as well. So, you know, that one's coming up as well. Uh, and then we get into the fall where, you know, I think it's probably a little too early to start talking about those conferences. But, you know, you and I are kind of like conference junkies. Like you can't really come up with a conference that we wouldn't be interested in attending. Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to network, you know, talk with people, meet meet folks, stuff like that. Uh, continuing education, right? Um, stuff like that. And especially if we can get the podcast out there to do stuff, that's always you know interesting to be able to, to sit down and have conversations you know, like we've done for previous conferences, and I'm sure we'll do for, for future ones as well. Absolutely. All right. So why don't we get to our topic of the day? And I think we haven't settled on a title of this, but my working title is Identity and Access Management from a CISO's Eyes. So why don't we invite some CISO eyes into here? <laughs> um, we've got Helen Patton. She's a Chief Information Security Officer for the Cisco Security Business Group. Welcome to the show, Helen. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, pumped. So pumped. let's get into it. I think one of the things that we always like to do with first timers on our show is really kind of understand their identity journey and their mm. background and kind of understanding what is the origin story for Helen Patton, you know, CISO. <sighs> And the things that you've worked on in the past that have formed, you know, where you are at today, is identity something that you chose or did it choose you? It chose me. My whole career is a series of accidents and opportunities that I wasn't planning for. So I've been doing this security thing in in various forms for longer than I care to admit now. Um, certainly in the 90s, I was doing IT. I hadn't got into the security space in the 90s, but a lot of the problems of IT were identity-related, active directory structures and this and that and the other thing. When I got into security proper, it was it was at JP Morgan Chase, and I was there in the, like, from 2004 through 2013. Um, and identity for the banks was a big deal. It was heavily regulated. It was... Um, it was it was a focus. So there, there, there were two kinds of identities at J.P. Morgan Chase. There was the the employee identity store, and then of course there were customer identities. My focus at the bank there was around employee identity, and there was a big focus at the time on certification. So I cut my teeth less on the tech of identity and more on the process of identity. And this is where I got introduced to concepts like is identity a security function? Is it a IT function? Is it a business function? Is it some combination of the three? You know, what does it mean to have a role? Do we only have defined roles? Does everyone have their own role? If everyone has their own role, is it a role? You know, those kinds of existential questions. So I was at JP Morgan for a while. I left there and I went to higher education as a vertical and I went and I was the CISO for Ohio State. And there I learned about the joys of munging together your customer base, aka your students, and your employees, and your alumni, and your visiting scholars, and ev and all your vendors and everybody into a singular identity store. 
which blew my brain. So I went from role-based access to attribute-based access to as soon as you leave, we're going to cut all your access off to, hey, we're going to keep your access for forever because you never know. Someday you may come back. Like or like a complete 180 in terms of the way we do access and identity um, and having to deal with identity technologies in that environment is really hard. So questions for Gartner, do we see consumer identity and corporate identity merging is is a super important question for me to know. And then I left there uh, and I joined Duo and Duo is part of Cisco. And I am, so I am now, as it turns out, the CISO for the security business group at Cisco. So for those who may not know, Cisco does more than sell network gear. So uh, we we do a security thing and my job is is now to to protect that. And so some of that is, you know, how do we do identity management of cloud? How do we, what does the role of identity mean in protecting data stores that don't sit on our own infrastructure, all of that kind of stuff? So much more into the the tooling and the technology of it in this role than I was in previous roles. And all of those transitions were accidental and just a, a product of timing but I love identity. It, for me, identity is the core of security and I will I will die on that hill. So, yeah. I find it interesting that you mentioned less on the tech side and more on the business side of identity. And I think this is, personally, I think this is a weakness that a lot of organizations have is not really understanding the business of identity. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, conferences and organizations that really don't spend enough time in that. I think a lot of people yeah. try to measure identity intelligence based on, how much SAML, you know, do you know? How much, you know, open ID code can you write to integrate right. apps? Which is important stuff to know. Of course, you you, you kind of need to know the, at least the basics of it. But yep. I like to focus on the business side, which is I think, you know, probably my particular strength is how do you run an IAM program? You know, what are the IAM program manager things that need to happen? You know, you're out there you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, getting buy-in, you know, getting budgets together, right? Things yeah. like that to kind of make all those things happen. And then I turn it over to the smart people to like, you know, do do the actual stuff. But I think we have a blind spot in the industry about the non-technical side of identity, which does us a disservice because I think there's a lot of really smart people that would be really great for identity. Mm. But there's this, maybe there's this, maybe it's just me. Maybe there's a perception that it's, oh, you have to be technical to be identity. And I don't think that that's true. Do you agree with that? Or, um, you know, do you have different thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And every time I get asked this question and I get this question asked a lot, I change my answer, by the way. So if you've heard me on another podcast and you're like, this is a different answer, this is be why. Um, I think there's need for for both. When I was at Ohio State, I had the the pleasure of working with people who had had developed some of the identity solutions that we use in higher ed, and they continue to support those things. And higher ed has a really complicated identity management structure and business process that has to be dealt with. And there were technical people that were right in the center of getting identity to work, not only with all these different kinds of people, but also all these different kinds of applications and networking structures. Like as a CISO, I would have networking vendors show up and go, what what networks do you use? And I'd go, yes, because we literally had some every piece of every vendor's networking equipment ever. And they all had different ways of managing identity. And so you say single sign-on and well, what does single sign-on mean? 
So, you know, being able to work with developers who were dealing with shibboleth and other things, I learned so much. And these people, like, they've forgotten more technical identity information than I've got in my, you know, like, I can't, I'm in awe, right? And where we messed up with identity was never on the technical side. It was always on the business process side. And I'll give you a, a story around this security story. We decided, I would never do this again, by the way, we decided we would fish our own people. And so we went to our identity teams and we said, give us everyone. And so being the literal developers they are, they gave us everybody. Turns out we'd included people who had died in our phishing pool and some of them responded, huh? And the reason some of them responded was that the employee had died, but their spouse wanted to use their OSU identity to get football tickets. So the spouse kept the account active. And because the employee was an was a retiree who was alumni, who was a professor emeriti, who would come back and guest lecture every now and again, the HR department was not managing those identities because they weren't active employees, but neither was anybody else. So we had all these sort of emeriti faculty who ultimately would die, but their accounts never would. And their accounts were being actively used for things that weren't core to the central organization, right? So all of which is to say, because I did the security effort of trying to fish people, we found out that we had this business process problem where when people retired, HR stopped thinking them as current employees. And I had to go and fix the HR lifecycle problem in order to fix my identity problem, in order to fix my security problem. So it's not about the tooling. It's about the people and the process. And then and then it's about the tooling. So you, we need people who can do all three, actually. I would imagine that's a pretty interesting bar chart or like pie pie chart to look at. I was like, here's the age of our respondents, you know, zero to 21. And then there's like dead. And dead. There's <laughs> a slice of the pie. Right? 150. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Interesting uh, how that works. <laughs> I guess OSU to, you know, the Ohio State University, right? Football tickets are probably pretty valuable, I'd imagine, since it's one of the premier programs, uh, at least in the US, yeah, right? For sure. Yeah. 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 It's great. So, uh, Helen, you're one of the, I'm going to stroke your ego here a little bit. You're one of the big brains, I think, in the identity space. But I think there's a lot of big brains in the identity space, but you put your thoughts out there. You've got a blog. Um, I've been looking at it, and it seems to me one of the main topics that you blog on is the intersection of identity and ethics. Mm. Can you explain to us at a high level what that is, what that mm. means? Yeah, so I geek out on technology ethics. And so things like artificial intelligence are right now completely ringing my bell because there is like landmines all over the place to mix my analogies. Um, I started blogging because uh, I was wrestling with topics that I just couldn't go and find a LinkedIn learning school on. And in our industry, in identity and in security in general, there's so much sort of community knowledge out there and I was trying to tap into it. So two things happened when this was still when I was back at Ohio State. One, I was asked to take on management of the digital accessibility team. So this is about making our technologies accessible to people primarily through um, the Disabilities Act legislation. So 
people with visually impaired, functionally impaired, you know, whatever. But it also coincided with a lot of stuff around how do we do diversity and equity and inclusion in organisations within a company, but also for our customers. And I was managing this identity team and all of those topics of equity and inclusion and accessibility and security all seem to fall into my lap all at once. And so a lot of the blogging that I do tries to pull those things apart. And then the second thing that happened was Wendy Nather, who became my boss when I joined Duo and Cisco, came to be a keynote speaker at Ohio State for one of our cybersecurity days. And she talked about being the daughter of aging parents and trying to manage, help them manage their affairs from a distance when she wasn't them and the banks had no way of, of provisioning her access to act on their behalf without having her having to have her go to a lawyer and get power of attorney. Like the, the path to her being a, a legitimate executor for her parents uh, technically was really difficult. And at the same time, she was also the mother of a teenage child and she was managing the affairs of the teenage child and the same thing was applying. And so what if you combine all that equity, access, inclusion question with the how are we living our lives today question, it really sent me down this, this path of are we designing our systems and identities right in the middle of it, are we designing our systems in such a way that people can live the lives they want to lead using the systems that we have? And I, I haven't, I'm not hugely optimistic that we are actually doing that at the moment. And so I want to continue to have that conversation globally to see how we can collectively deal with this. Because I don't think we're going to solve this as individual companies or technologists. I think it's going to have to be a collective uh, effort. So I know there are places doing it, but um, but that's why I blog about it, just to, to get people thinking about it and raising the questions. Probably keep going back to your experience at OSU, but mm. I worked with a lot of large research institutions, and the identity management challenge is probably more difficult than any other industry. Now, yeah. financial services, you've got the regulatory environment, and that is like insane, right? So, you went from the uh, higher ed where there's basically no regulatory except maybe FERPA. Oh, you, you have might no have, idea. Okay, you, you'll oh, no, funny, no, no. So. We, we, we are, uh, okay, so let me run this down. <laughs> our student data, our financial aid is regulated like a bank. We're subject to GLBA. Our hospitals, HIPAA, we got that. Our retail, and we got millions of dollars of retail, PCI. Um, NERC SIP for all of our nuclear reactors and other things that we've got going on. All the FAA stuff, because guess what? We had an airport of our own. Like, if there is a regulation, CMMC, Fed, blah, 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 it's happening on research universities. But what we do is segment our environment. So all the PCI stuff's over here, all the HIPAA stuff's over there. And what's really confusing now is that all these, it used to be that the individual colleges were segmented. So you could go, okay, Helen works for College of Medicine. She's going to be subject to HIPAA. We're going to manage her identity that way. 
Well, the problem is now that the College of Medicine is doing shared research with the College of Engineering and the School of Dance, go figure, and all of them have different regulatory profiles, and now we've got to manage to, to multiple regulatory profiles. It's When I left JP Morgan, I thought I was going to higher ed, which would be easier. Oh, God, I was so, <laughs> so wrong. Like financial services is high pressure, I get it, but from a security and identity perspective, it is easy peasy. You want hard? Go to universities. It's crazy. Okay, Sorry, so I Jim. retract that comment. But we, <laughs> hey, we're doing this conversation in real time, right? So, yeah. um, but really, where I was going with the conversation was around the decentralized nature of, you know, universities. You typically find that there is a kind of like a corporate IT where you have like a net ID or maybe it's your Buckeye ID for Ohio state. I'm not sure. I made that up. Um, it's actually the Buckeye ID. Well, well guessed. <laughs> all right. And then you have all of your colleges and departments that run, basically run their own IT department. Right. Mm -hmm. And so where I was going with this decentralized I decentralization is tying it to the idea of decentralized identity, mm -hmm. verifiable credentials, and kind of the future of that. So mm. I'm not sure if there is a tie-in, but I wanted to just explore that with you. Do, do you see where I'm going with this? I do. And I will say that in, in the eight years that I was in higher ed, I did start to see a move, at least from a technology architecture perspective, to more of a centralized function. So there's a lot of downward pressure on universities to be more efficient in their dollars so that we're not charging our students so much tuition. And so there was this recognition that having multiple IT departments in multiple places didn't really make sense. So one of the things we did at Ohio State, for example, every college, and Ohio State has lots of colleges, had their own active directories, probably more than one, right? Uh, we had a big program where if we couldn't get rid of those active directories, we at least linked them so that identity management cascaded through the active directories and it wasn't just uh, an independent identity for every college and that kind of thing. So we've centralised and rationalised to the degree we could, but there's a lot that goes on in universities that just doesn't make sense to do that for sure. The other thing that's happening sort of is this concept of bring your own identity is that a is that a way of dealing with it so in universities more than any other verticals we're seeing this trend of people don't want to have a separate identity at work and a digital identity at work and a separate one at home they they just want the same that they they want it to be all the same so is there an opportunity to do distributed identities and be able to use that both in a consumer sense and in a corporate sense. I think you'll see that to be played with at universities. There's so, certainly also a sort of a secondary thing that says, can we put um, transcripts on the blockchain? And so rather, if you have to go to a new school because maybe your undergrad was at one school and you want to do your master's and your doctorate at another school, instead of having to go back to your old school and say, please, can you forward the transcript from, from here to there? Can you just bring your own, use it where you need to use it and be able to just, you know, shop yourself around a little bit. We're seeing that on the transcript side. I think the concept is the same on the digital side of identities. 
the infrastructure behind it's pretty massive though. So, and again, it goes back to people, process and tools. It's not just the technology, the process and the people have to be able to handle that too. So I think we're a long way from it, but I I would say look to universities as a, as a testing ground for a lot of that stuff for sure. I think testing ground is a great idea. Um, You know, it's kind of like I favor the term self-sovereign identity over bring your own identity. Yeah, that's great. I've been around long enough to remember bring your own identity used to mean log in with your Facebook ID. And I don't, even as a student, I don't want my Facebook, which I would think most Gen Z's and, and, and more recent um, don't even use Facebook anymore, but they use social media and you want some separation between your professional life and your, your personal life. Um, But what got me thinking about this topic a lot was um, I heard that there's some legislation potentially that would be going through or up for a vote anyway, that, um, you know, basically they say, okay, you have to be a certain age to sign up for social media. Now, conceptually we can say whether or not that's a good idea but ultimately if regardless of what the age is what are the penalties if the company drops the ball unless the person created an account and how is that going to work behind the scenes mm-hmm. so i'm wondering like okay well you know if the penalty is like hey for everybody who you let take an account who's under this age if it's a ten thousand dollar fine I mean, those could really rack up if you don't have good processes to stop it. So I'm thinking maybe that's an area where these self-sovereign IDs really can can um, take effect. Decentralized identity, verifiable credentials. You know, can we get to the point where it's like your government-issued ID or some reputable organization can vouch for the fact that you are of a certain age, for example? Yep. It's an it's a super complicated topic, and I'm I'm watching it with interest. So in the US, we already have the copper regulation, which is about protecting minors online, right? Which already says things like, if you're under, I'm going to get my ages wrong. I'm not a lawyer. Don't quote me on this. But if you're under the age of, I think it's 16, your parents have to consent to you being on an online platform. And how well is that working out for us? There's that sort of question. But there is also the question of if we're going to do sovereign identities, does that presume that the person who owns that identity is legally able to own that identity? Like what what makes someone eligible to be the owner of a sovereign ID? And if it's legal, well, then they can't have a sovereign ID until they're 18, depending on the state, or 21, right? There's no federal regulation that says legal age of owning digital assets, maybe they're going to need to create one. Um, so there's sort of a question of, are, are you legally able able to enter into a sort of a contractual agreement that says my sovereign identity is going to be used to access this corporate thing, whether it's TikTok or whatever, there's that. And then there's also a question of usability. Uh, is the technology to a point where a minor, a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old can actually use this thing? And let's not get into the, the conversation of digital accessibility of sovereign identities, which is a whole different ball of wax. But let's just say for the typical 10-year-old, how, how easy is it going to have to be to be usable 
And have we got those structures in place? And right now the answer is no, we, we don't. And um, we're going to have to think of all of those things before we're going to be able to bring sovereign identities to the table. Yeah, I think you're referring to the COPA regulations, which I believe is 13, but I'm not sure what the penalties are if you let somebody in who's under 13. It's interesting. I went to a a Jack Daniels website. Uh, If you know me, that you're not surprised, but um, it's, you know, the first screen was splash page. Are you at least 21 years old or put your birthday in something like that? Right. What's to stop me from lying? <laughs> Nothing. No, and, come on. Everyone tells the truth on the internet. Yeah, that's well, right. <laughs> and quite frankly, every security person ever never puts their real birthday in, right? We all lie. Like everyone's birthday is like 1st of January 1985 or something, right? So old enough to be dangerous but not my real birthday. Like there, there is no way to, to validate that the information being put into any of these fields is accurate. It's all self-reported. So why should kids be any different? I want to ask you the question, going back to, you know, universities are breeding ground or testing ground um, or for the decentralized identity. It got me thinking about, and, and going back to my original opening dialogue with Jeff about work from home, you know, I started in the workplace in the nineties. Couldn't imagine, like working from home was like, a, it was just not done. You know, if it snowed, you could still take a snow day and not work that day, right? <laughs> Nowadays, like if it snows, it's like you're expected to to be online like any other day. So there's the the technology aspect. Part of it was, you know, working back then, if you had a laptop you could bring home, you were in the, the minority, right? And you were connecting with a modem. Mm-hmm. So the technology has gotten a lot better. But also, you know, entering the workforce at that time as a young person, it's kind of like there were people who worked in that company for 30, 40 years um, and people just didn't do that sort of thing. Mm. Now you've got folks who are coming up who, you know, there were, you know, little kids in the back seat on an iPad and they mm. had technology as part of their life from the from the very beginning of their life. And I'm wondering... You know, this push for I, I'm i me, I want to use my identity. How much of that is the technology versus how much of that is being driven by, you know, the fact that they are, you know, digital first their whole life? It's a super good question. I have, I challenge the whole, they are digital natives and, and they just know what to do. No, they don't. Like we rolled Duo out at Ohio State and we rolled it out to everybody pretty much all at once. We rolled it to all our faculty and staff. And by the way, a third of our student body are also staff because we pay them to work on campus, right? The biggest issue we had in rolling out Duo was not using Duo. The biggest issue we had was helping people find the app store on their phone. Find the app store. These are our digital natives finding the app store. Really? Right? So, the two-year-old who's in the back of the car seat with an iPad, I guarantee you is not going to be using an iPad when they turn 18 and they show up in the workforce because iPads won't exist then. So the, the, the technology they're learning may probably will not be the technology they have to work with. And this is true for our teenagers and our college students today. So, you know, 
hopefully by the time they become 18-year-olds and going into the workforce or 21-year-olds or whatever, that we do have sovereign identities, but they won't have grown up with it. It'll arrive when they're like 14 or 15. So they're in the, they're as much in the dark as this 50-year-old woman is sitting here, right? Um, because the technology is changing too fast. What the technology is doing it's making it easier to use because I remember what tech was like in the in the 90s. I had to build my own PC and I mean the whole box, not like I just went to Micro Center and got a box and plugged it in and it worked. Like this whole self-service thing that we do for people now, it's sort of like cars. You know, in the old days, you had to build your own car and be your own mechanic and now like you don't. You should probably, but you don't. And And – we're doing the same thing with tech. So we're calling all these kids digital natives. No, no, we've just made the tech easier to use. And by the way, particularly in the identity space, the people that really know identity, they're about to retire. So we've got a knowledge retirement cliff that is about to happen in security, in identity, in some of the technology fields that I'm not sure we're quite ready to deal with. And that's a whole different topic, by the <laughs> way. But but yeah, it's it's... It's going to be a, a, a thing. And um, I don't think our schools, I don't think our K through 12 or our colleges are preparing our students properly for what they're going to be facing digitally and from an identity perspective. I, they're just not. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, but hopefully the answer to my next question is not so dark and dystopian because <laughs> I want to know what does the future look like? I mean, it seems like, the technology is there that, you know, it could recognize you, tie you to a record or identity. I mean, this could get to the point where it's, it's very automatic that, you know, maybe goes even beyond, I I would assume some point it goes beyond the point of um, self-sovereign identity that, you know, it just could recognize you and Mm -hmm. tie you back to your Helen Patton, your Jim McDonald, et cetera. But, I think there's the counterbalance, which is that at least today we, we expect some level of privacy, right? That's why we don't, you know, agree with the idea of like you're walking in the mall and there's cameras watching you and just identifying you and knowing everywhere you go because we expect some level of privacy. What do you see in the future? I mean, do you see the, this privacy wall breaking down and technology taking over? Is it a good future or a dystopian future? So you wanted something that was positive and uplifting, Jim, and I'm about to go deep back down into dystopian angst and despair with this question, I have to tell you. I, I, um, no, it's okay. The, the... You're okay, Helen. This is par for the course for Jim. He loves to bring <laughs> us down here. <laughs> there is a lot of work being done around how to manage this balance between privacy and access and privacy and convenience, which are sort of parts of this conversation. But they're, the people who are thinking about it, I'm going to generalize really badly here, and I'm sure there's people out here who, who don't fit this mold, but in general, the people thinking about these questions are sitting in think tanks and universities and are not practitioners. And the people who are building technology and are the practitioners of the day-to-day don't have time to think about these things deeply and strategically and We've got no regulation right now that deals with it. Like the, the privacy regulation, he's, I can sum up every privacy reg ever 
and it is don't lose any PII. Like we can get into definitions of what PII is and, um, you know, what the definition of lost is, but as far as regulations is concerned, it's about confidentiality, not the right of privacy. It's not, there's no regulation that says as a company, you can't hold someone's privacy hostage to convenience. Like someone should have as much convenience as anybody else and be able to have control over what they want to share and how they want to share share it, right? But we're not doing that yet. And so right now, technology is plowing ahead at a million miles an hour and the people who are thinking about what, what would it take from a regulatory um, operational framework kind of way to make this work, Aren't, they are not. They are not in sync, and they're not talking to the degree they should. And so, I think we're going to continue to see privacy thrown up as a barrier to technology progress. But I think the bigger issue isn't with the consumer interface, which is where we're seeing this. The bigger issue is with the data analytics and the the data control that goes on behind the scenes. So a lot of the privacy stuff is like. When a, when a consumer goes to your website, they should be able to choose which cookies that are activated. That's not their biggest privacy risk. Their biggest privacy risk is the fact that you can go and buy healthcare information online that is meant to be anonymized. But actually, if you look at the data, you can find out who it is, who the Australian woman is who's sitting in Columbus, Ohio, who just went to the doctors and found some. Thing that she would like to be kept private. Thank you very much. It's all out there. So we need, we need again, people, process, and tools. The whole back-end process of who knows what and what they do with that information is the bigger risk that I don't think we've got solved yet. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on that topic? I mean, Helen, I think, and I are, th- are thinking the same lines here is, I guess the only thing I'll add is a lot of these controls that I see, I feel are, are for show. They don't really mm. do anything <laughs> and they're not, they don't, they don't make an impact. Okay. Now every website I go to has this stupid cookie thing that either I can click okay, or I can X out of it, or I can hit the really small button that says, let me go manage my cookies and then do a bunch of things before I get to the thing that I want to get to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a usability problem. Mm-hmm. It just, I, I'm, I'm glad you hit that one, Helen, because I, I find those so irritating and so useless <laughs> that they just, yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense. Right. So technology can can help and technology can also enable bad things. Um, and people have to make decisions around that. And uh, again, I've, I've always been a, a, my sandbox moment is we need practitioners to have a voice into some of the think tanks and some of the policy engines that are going on in identity and, and in all kinds of security areas. And the practitioners are off practicing and they don't have time to do this other stuff. And we've got to find a way to bring them together because, the, the you know, those really smart people working on Shibboleth at Ohio State, for example, have all kinds of input into what we need to be doing to to be managing identities in a secure and private way, but they haven't got time to go up to Capitol Hill and talk to a senator about it. We, you know, we've got to find those bridges. Yeah. Uh, good luck trying to talk to anybody <laughs> that's actually going to make it happen. In your role as a CISO, I guess, what are some of the threats that keep you up at night? 
you know, from a security perspective or identity perspective, I'm just curious, you know, what is it that concerns you that we should be watching out for? If you'd have asked me this 10 years ago, I would have rattled off all the threats of the day. Um, I've got to a point where a threat is just a threat. It's another threat. It's a different kind of threat. It's going to be a threat. It's got, there's always going to be a threat. It's it's a thing. Um, for me, though, I'm going to say people, but that sounds trite. I, I'm, I'm going to say people, and I don't mean because I think people are the weakest link. I think that's a an easy out to say our processes suck, but we're going to blame the person because we can. Like when you need a throat to choke, it's got to be a people throat. It can't be a process throat or governance throat. Um, so what do I? What am I concerned about? I am concerned that organization and society leaders do not understand the systemic risk that we are all facing, and they think that they can manage their risk as an independent silo, and they can't. And I think as a society, we're going to – something something society-wide will happen, and we will realize that we just didn't get it right. And, and super people will run around and fix it, and everyone will go, whew, boy, we dodged that bullet. Aren't we good? That's great. But one of the reasons I see so many people in security burning out is because we, we've been working this for a really long time and really, even though the threats have changed, the attitude towards it hasn't really significantly changed yet. So the things that worry me are, one, that we're going to have something really big and we're not ready for it. That's sort of the, the community concern level. But at a tactical level, I'm actually concerned about the mental health of our technologists and our and our practitioners. I think that is a bigger problem that we need to be thinking about. Yeah, it's kind of refreshing. I don't normally hear that answer from folks is, you know, taking care of people, basically, is what we're talking about. Mm. Um, this is an identity podcast, for the most part, uh, when we're not talking AI or other things. But I'm curious, you know, from a CISO perspective, again, kind of putting that hat on, we are always looking for funding to get things done. Mm. And as a CISO, I'm sure you're juggling multiple funding priorities and say, okay, well, you know, I have this part of the budget and I'm sure your budget is constantly, you know, being added to shrunk, you know, changed up throughout the year. Mm. What is some tips that you can give to identity people out there who know they need to get stuff done and they need to go to a CISO or somebody to get funding? Like, what is a tip that we can say, okay, here's, you know, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution, <laughs> right? Those types of things. But, you know, what? How, how can we get more funding allocated to take care of some of these identity identity issues that might be out there? Yeah. Um, assuming, right, that the other things are covered, the people, the process, you know, things like that. Right. Yeah, every organization is going to have a different cultural way of, of allocating resources. So it's going to be really company dependent, but organizationally dependent. If one of the things that I have seen to be successful is to look at whatever the organization is doing that is their big priority item. Now, to the degree an identity team can get involved in these conversations early enough is going to be a bit of a challenge. But every organization's got some big effort that is their sort of flagship effort that's going on. It could be some kind of digital transformation thing. It could be they're moving in, they're doing mergers and acquisitions. It could be they're going into a new country. It could be any of those things. 
those big projects are opportunities to do something interesting in identity management. You're not doing it necessarily for the entire company, but you're doing it for that thing. And when you do that, you get the money because that if you make the case that identity is important to that thing, and I can't think of any place in an organization where identity isn't an important contributing factor, but to the degree you can say, hey, this big thing you want to do, you need to make sure your identity processes, tools, whatever, are ready for this. Tie the funding of what you need to get that thing to that big project. And then when it's successful, I'm trusting, here's my optimistic side of me, Jim. When that's successful, then you can go and say, look what we did over here. We should be doing it elsewhere and you can grow it. Um, so that's how that's a bit of a big company answer, but that's sort of how I see it. On a smaller side, I think there's opportunity to work perhaps with a, a customer if you're in the if you've got that consumer sort of identity side of things. Go find a customer with a unique use case that you think identity can support and then go partner with that customer to get the funding for that kind of effort. Again, prove that it works and then grow it across the team is a great way to go. So I've I've seen those kinds of strategies work. Um but good luck. It's always, it's, it's always hard. <laughs> I love that answer, Helen. I really don't have anything to add except. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's what I've seen as well. If you could tie, I am to a bigger initiative like digital transformation, like an M and a, I mean, that's, that's what there's budget carved out for that big initiative. And if you mm-hmm. can make your case, you can get a chunk of that funding. Mm-hmm. So you've been super generous with your time today but I want to try to get as much content for our listeners out there as possible. And so I'm going to bring you out onto the lightning round where I'm going to throw a few topics out there and ask you where are we at in the hype cycle for that technology Mm. uh, and why? So, you know, one to two minutes. So the first one is AI in the context of IAM. Uh, I'm going to get my hype cycle terminology wrong, but uh, I'm, I'm, I think it's in the trough of despair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't have to use the the, the technical hype cycle terminology yet yeah. to, to let you off the hook for that. Uh, you know, we're at a point every, every vendor is going out there and saying we've got AI for this and AI for that. So first of all, I want to call BS. I think we've got really fast machine learning. I don't think we've got AI in the way most people understand AI to be. But I also think... Um, if you go and buy that tool with the AI, there is sort of also an assumption that that tool integrates with the rest of your tech stack and often it doesn't. So I think the promise of AI is there and I think there are some folks who are starting to leverage it, but it is fine. It is proving to be more difficult than people thought. And so I think uh, people are sort of, it's like touching a hot stove. It's like, you, you know, you get this momentary flash of, ah, and then you back away from it. I think people have touched the hot stove of AI and now they're backing away from it and going, okay, we've got to wait and see when this has got to get a little more usable before we can really get value out of it. Yeah, I think it's, I'm going to pull it back to a thing you brought up earlier where you would build your own car and you know how to work on it. And it seems like nowadays you just have a computer chip in your car and you don't know how it works. It just works. And to me, that's the part of AI in your IAM context is like, it's going to start doing things, 
And if you don't know, if you can't predict how, you know, it always seems like business process, when you automate business process, you had to know how it would work if it was manually step-by-step -step happening. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just say, well, the computer chip's going to take care of that. And mm -hmm. we trust the computer chip, but I think that's where AI is taking us. So good, good answer on that one. The next one, I'm not sure if you've heard of this before, but it's zero trust. <laughs> uh, zero trust. I, I'm actually really bullish on zero trust. Although you get a hundred people in the room, you get a hundred definitions of what zero trust is. So on the hype cycle, I would still say it's emerging. I think if you talk to most people, they would tell you they're beginning their zero trust journey. They're not fully into it yet. Even the Googlers might think that they're not quite fully into it yet. Um, so emerging, but I think the potential of getting zero trust, if you get it right, particularly in the identity. So let, let me put a definition around it. I know this is lightning round and I'm not helping you here. Through the lens of identity, I think zero trust becomes more dynamic authentication and authorization and continuous authentication and authorization. It's not zero trust, it's like contextual trust. And I think identity has a huge role to play in that. I think the challenge has been that, that companies have tried to use tools to do zero trust and not made it an identity first activity. And I think if they make it an identity first activity, they're going to get further and faster, further along faster. You know, I, I've been to RSA the last couple of years and Last year, I came away with the message that our zero trust has been solved because literally every single product there was some sort of zero trust tie-in. Mm. And I feel like it, this isn't a new concept. It's been around for at least a, f a few years, if not more. And it's, this is the marketing term that's being used now for this you know, continuous authentication, really, which is mm. what you just hit on. And I'm curious, though, the, the, the U.S. government has put out now mm. you know, memorandums and, and other things to say, hey zero trust is where you should be going. Mm -hmm. How does that affect CISOs? Do they look at that and say, yeah, well, you know, no crap. We already, <laughs> that's, we already knew that. Or does it spur a call to action to say, hey, if it's good enough for NIST and federal government and CISA and stuff like that, yeah, we should be looking at it if I haven't already been thinking about that. Like, I guess the question there is how much does gu guidance from government help inform a CISO's strategy when it comes to that sort of thing? Honestly, I don't think it does a lot. I will, I, I'm actually, I've read all of the federal government's documents about it. And that there is a whole sort of cascade of documents from a strategy document to an architectural diagram to a standards, like the, uh, you know, NIST ISO, I'm going to get it wrong, 120, NIST 127, something like that. Anyway, I've read all of them. Collectively, it's actually a really great reference document. So if you don't even know where to start Zero Trust, that's a, that's a really good place to go look. But you've got to remember, they wrote it for the federal government. They didn't write it for the Silicon Valley startup. They didn't write it for the hospital in the Midwest. They wrote it for federal agencies. And so you, can, you, take, what is, you take what resonates and you leave the rest. Um, so I don't know a CISO who doesn't create a strategy by going out and looking at sort of the landscape of things, what's what's happening, where are they compared to where they're seeing the industry go, all of those things. This is just another data element for them to consider. But unless they're a CISO of an agency, it's it's not going to be a driver. Do you guys remember the McLaughlin Group? 
It was a Saturday Night Live skit. Actually, it was a PBS show. And so they would do like a lightning round. Then John McLaughlin would go, wrong. Compensating controls <laughs> will continue to make zero trust <laughs> an unimportant factor. Yeah, possibly. So, uh, all right. I ha- that was just eating away at my brain. So I had to throw it out there. All right. The third lightning round item is blockchain. Again, within the context of I am. Nascent on the hype ch- nascent i um again i think identity is one of these places where you, it's hard to solve purely with technology and so the i think that you know the idea of using the blockchain is intriguing uh where we can take it i think it is being explored but again you've got to have if you're going to consume it as either an individual person or as a company and you're in part of an identity management team it's got to be able to play with all of your other pieces and all the other pieces aren't ready for it yet. So uh, I would give it a five to 10 year horizon to be able to be really ubiquitous. Do you think it's a still a, a solution in search of a problem? Or do you think that the problems have been identified? It's just taking longer to really figure out and apply the solution correctly? Neither, actually. I, I, I think... The way we do technology is someone comes up with the idea for tech and they come up with a use case and they go out and they realize that the use case they thought they were solving for wasn't really the use case that it was a best fit for. And we iterate on that, right? So I think blockchain's going through the same thing. People are going to iterate on it for a while before we find the mesh of this is a technology that solves this kind of problem. Right now we're going, we think this technology can solve this kind of problem. Let's test it out. That's where we are, I think, at the moment. Um, I I think someone will find a really valid use for it. I don't think they've done it yet. I don't think they've done it yet. The valid use for it usually comes about because of either advances in other kinds of technology, which is certainly on on the cards. And I think Blockchain and artificial intelligence are really closely linked, actually. Um, so, where as as each side of those things improve, that that will accelerate the movement for both of them. Um, but the other piece to it is the regulatory. You know, what's the community willing to do and and to tolerate? And I don't think the community writ large understands how to use this stuff well enough to have an opinion yet on on the blockchain side. All right. I, I know we've been going for about an hour, and but I have to follow up here on something you just said. The the linking of AI and blockchain, I think, is really interesting because I think if they were working together, it might solve some of the the early issues that we're seeing now with things like ChatGPT and, and uh, Lambda and BARD and all that stuff out there with sources of information being mm. used for training data. Mm-hmm. If that training data was part of a blockchain, theoretically... You could opt in or opt out and track mm-hmm. where that data was coming from. Mm-hmm. And it's it just when you when you talked about it being linked together, I wonder if that is something that is in the cards for you know the, this this future of where data may be shared, sort of the self sovereign identity and the associated data that might come along with that identity, and yeah. where it may or may not be used and be able to track it. And I don't know if there's an answer for it now. It was just an interesting you know, thing picking away at my brain here as we were talking, but yeah. any reaction to that? Um, uh, this is where I'm hoping that people are actually paying attention. I trust that there is some researcher somewhere doing this work and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that published or 
someone listening to this podcast telling me it's already been done and, and finding me on LinkedIn and telling me that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the what the blockchain brings is some assurance of integrity of data and some assurance of immutability. We can get into arguments about how immutable a blockchain item is and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I think that brings that. I think that what the AI promises to bring is the ability to understand context really, really quickly and to be able to gather disparate data sources and, and make connections that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see for ourselves. But what it lacks is any level of confidence in integrity or immutability. And so I think they're, I think they can prop one another up um, that way. So I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. I think it's happening, but uh, I haven't seen it in any sort of commercial sense yet. Yeah, I think it's just interesting. And, and I'm, I'm bullish on the AI stuff. I think like you kind of still figuring out where's the leverage, you know, when's chat GPT going to take my job, mm. <laughs> things, things like that. Right. But until it's, until it's in a, in a spot where I think, you know, people can trust the data and mm. trust the response mm. that, that trust in the identity is going to have to be a, a key part of it. Mm. And Jim's, Jim's going to smile at me because that's an upcoming episode that we're going to talk about is trust and identity with uh, Eve Mailer at some point here. In oh, excellent. Yeah. So yeah. that's a good teaser. So you're welcome for that, Jim. Um, all right. So we've been going over about an hour, but I do like to end on a lighter note around here. We got really deep into the identity things. And I think it's safe to say that we're all a little bit nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> um, just having gotten to know each other over the last, you know, couple hours or so as we've been kind of been meeting and prepping and stuff like that and, and recording this. And I'm curious, what is everyone's nerdiest hobby that you might have? Um, I'm looking at Helen and I'm looking at her visual background. And I see some really interesting things and maybe that's it. Maybe there's other things that, that are, that she considers nerdy. And I know that, <laughs> and I, and I mean this as a term of endearment, right? I think having interesting hobbies and, cool things that people do on the side is, is fascinating kind of understands the human side of things, but what is the nerdiest, or what you think is the nerdiest hobby you have? Helen, why don't you go first? Yeah. So uh, my background right now includes some Lego Star Wars, but that is actually not the nerdiest thing that I, I do. So for the longest time, I can't, I don't, rem I don't know when this started, but I geek out, completely geek out on business management books. <laughs> uh, and when I was at Ohio State, I had the opportunity to do my master's in public policy. So that that pivoted slightly. I went from just sort of generic management books like how to be a good leader and how to how to make change in an organization. Now I've, I've pivoted to policy, technology policy books. So as we think about things like the adoption of, of sovereign identities, what is the policy implication of that? Who... who in the federal government at the US level or the Australian level or the British level or whatever, who gets to decide what that policy is? How would they decide whether the policy is giving them the outcomes they want? That kind of stuff. So on a weekend, you will find me with, um, you know, a cup of hot chocolate or a glass of wine or whatever and a policy book. And my husband thinks I'm a complete idiot, but that's, that's my nerdy hobby. And I must admit, I'm starting to pivot a little bit more now into ethics, AI, uh, identity ethics, accessibility ethics, that kind of stuff. So it's all munging together in my head. And you've written a book on, on this. So I want to give you a chance to talk about that book that you've written. But what's a, other than your own, which of course is, is required reading, 
What's a recommendation from a book perspective that you think people should be checking out? Um, so there's a book called Artificial Intelligence by Russell and Norvig, and it is uh, it's a textbook. So if again nerdy hobbies. I read textbooks for fun. Um, but it is a textbook about artificial intelligence and the use of artificial intelligence in uh, in society. And this question that Jim raised around, you know, uh, how much are we willing to trade privacy for usability and accessibility and those kinds of things? And uh, it, it really opened my eyes to some thinking. So worth a read. All right. And then we're reading actually the Phoenix Project internally as part of our identity team and security enabling team here at RSM. So we have yeah. like a book club for this quarter. So yeah, uh, I blasted through it in the first month or so of the year. So I'm kind of ahead of the game with everyone. We yeah. try to do like a couple chapters, like five chapters every couple of weeks or something like that. And then we come together as part of a group to kind of discuss, yeah. you know, thoughts and feelings around it. So definitely <laughs> a recommendation for people who are looking, who are looking for more of like a, a fiction based approach to learning IT. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. It's not, it's probably the opposite of a textbook. <laughs> I would tell you, there's a, I, I am part of a committee of folks we, that runs the Cybersecurity Canon, which is a list of books that have, we've all read, that we've done reviews on, uh, that's in cybersecurity. So if you go to cybersecuritycanon.com, you will find that link and all, everything in it. Um, Phoenix Project was one of our Hall of Fame award winners. But I will tell you, as the CISO, the character of the CISO in that book is a complete bumbling idiot, and I resent <laughs> the implication, but um, it's, a, it's an excellent book. Loved it. Loved it. The CISO transformation in that book was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah. it's a good lesson for folks to, to keep, you know, to, to take back. Because I think the the personalities are probably the more, you know, yeah. along the lines. Not necessarily the name, I guess. Uh, yeah. Jim, what's your nerdiest hobby? Well, <clears throat> I think all of my hobbies are very cool. Otherwise, I wouldn't do them. <laughs> but You're just a cool guy, man. But my, my hobby that most people probably think is extremely nerdy is I, I love watching documentaries. Um, and my favorite documentary is The Civil War by Ken Burns. I watched it the first time in the late 80s with my father, watched all like eight episodes. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but... Oh, no, don't spoil it. it. I want to know what happens. <laughs> you want to know what happens. <laughs> so... 90% of the documentary is black and white photos and storytelling. And there's a lot of, um, you know, different voices like Morgan Freeman uh, is in it and Sam Watterson is in it. And I don't know. I just love it. So I'll be watching it on TV and my son will sit down and he'll watch it for about 15, 20 minutes. He's like, Dad, can we watch something else? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? This is great. Why would I'm watching this for the 30th time and I love it. So that's my excellent. I've seen it too. Uh, he also, the national park series that he did was also just like that and excellent. So, and there's one watch. called the West, which is also really well done. I mean, all of his, I mean, Ken Burns is a genius, right? Yeah, for sure. So here's a nerdy uh, fact for you. Ken Burns is an actual effect in Apple's um, motion and final cut software. And basically what it does is you can choose the photo effect as you're putting together a video on a timeline. So here, here I'm explaining my nerdiness is, and it's actually called Ken Burns in the actual software. And it's, you set a point in time for one focus on the picture and then another, another spot on the picture and it will slowly pan between the two. 
to give you that effect of what you've seen in his documentaries. Yeah, so they redid that documentary and basically did that effect to a lot of the pictures so that they it's more visually interesting. But I I prefer the old one. Yeah. Um, I guess myself, it's not going to come as a surprise. Probably anybody who knows me, I'm just a, a general tech geek. So I'm constantly playing with stuff software, hardware, just trying to find the next cool thing that I think is interesting. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily nerdy, but I collect bags, backpacks, much to my wife's chagrin, because I have at least three dozen different styles of backpacks and travel bags and things like that. My search for the holy grail of the perfect bag is still eluding me. I've got a bag for every occasion. Do I one bag travel, two bag travel? Is this, you know, how many days? You know, I've I've gotten it down to a science where I can I can pretty much travel for I would say, you know, a week on one bag. Something that slits under under the under the front seat of an airplane just to make sure that things go through. So um, I think that's probably like the nerdiest thing I do. I don't know if it's nerdy as much as kind of a weirdo thing, but there's a subculture out there for like bag collection and things like that. So that's my nerdiest one. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, my husband is also a bag collector. I, I, yeah, I get it. And I, I feel for your wife. (laughs) She's always like, well, can we get rid of that one? I'm like, no, I might, I might use that one someday. And that's how bad it is. Like some of these I have not taken out of the house yet, but there is this, Mm. it's almost like sneakers. You know, there's people who like collect little sneakers and things like that. And my idea is at some point, you know, maybe it'll appear in my, my video background at some point will be like this. Imagine like this pegboard wall with all the bags I've collected. And, and I'm not talking like, you know, cheap bags. Out there, right? <laughs> yeah, these are like handcrafted, unique, you know, not, not kind of run the mill. So, the, you know, the more the unique, the better. But I'm always looking for like the perfect bag to take with me. And I had, you know, my wife gets a kick out of me whenever I'm going on a, a, a trip. I will unpack, repack several different styles of bags, mm, which is the one I want to take this time. And she just, you know, yeah. Happy Valentine's Day, a day late to my wife. But uh, yes, I, um, you know, uh, am, am a bag collector. So, um, all right. Well, let's go ahead and leave it there uh, for this week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put a couple show notes. Uh, Helen, you mentioned there was one about the the book club. Or the big the was it cybersecurity canon or something? Yeah, like that? cybersecurity canon, like canon, not canon, C A N O N, like the camera, not like the artillery. <laughs> Although I guess if you you could throw them at someone's face if you wanted to, but yes, let's you try could. To, try to be nice. Uh, so I'll put a link to that in our show notes. I'll put a link to your your website, uh, cisohelen.com, mm-hmm. which also has other links to things you've done. Uh, maybe we'll make the wall of fame with the different podcasts and things that you've been on, um, make that on there. And then of course your LinkedIn, uh, I'm sure people will be happy to reach out. We always like to throw people into the fire and say, Hey, Helen will be glad to connect with you. And you you can tell her how, how much you agree or disagree with her in very polite and diplomatic ways. Right. Um, and the same thing for Gemini, right? You can always reach out to us on LinkedIn. Again, we're going to be a Gartner, uh, in March. We're looking to crowdsource. Very difficult, challenging questions for the Gartner Identity and Access Management Analysts, uh, Henrique and Becky. So if they're listening, be prepared. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, really put them on, on the hot seat, so to speak. And you can connect with us. We're on the web, idacpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, at idacpodcast. We're also on Mastodon, at idacpodcast, at infosec.exchange. 
Mastodon, get your stuff together. It's very difficult to, you know, get that out and, and make sure people are on the right servers and all that good stuff. So, um, all right. And then don't forget to subscribe and, you know, like the podcast and leave us a review, stuff like that. We got some really great reviews over the last couple of months. So I've been trying to put those on Twitter as I get time to kind of highlight that. So, um, it's always good stuff. And that's a free way that you can help us continue to bring great guests like Helen to the show. Uh, makes us be more, makes us appear more important than we really are. So that's always helpful. <laughs> uh, Helen, thank you so much for being with us. And Jim, as well as thanks for your time. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up for this week and talk with everyone in the next one. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the Center.